Where is God when life ceases to fit into any neat categories? This is Truth Encounter, and today we want to take a look at one of the strangest chapters in the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 21, a chapter our study leader Dave Wurtson has titled, Willing to Mess with the Messiness. Last time we were together, Dave shared with us about how God sought to help a city deal with unsolved murders and with the case of a captive woman. Now, let's join Dave as he seeks to help us learn why God included this strange material where he appears to even condone divorce and polygamy. God enters into the messiness of war, and you notice what he does with his own children of Israel? He says, you can't do that. You can't just rape a woman as a soldier. You can't just, because you have the power over her, you can't just rip her out of her family because she's beautiful, do whatever you want with her. No. God makes his Israelites go through a very careful ritual. They need to respect her. They need to give her a full month, which was the morning time for a very honored person. They need to give her time to mourn the loss of her family and mourn the change in her situation. And only then could she be brought in. I want you also to see that she is brought into the covenant people of God. She is not treated as a foreigner. She becomes the wife of an Israelite under this old covenant, and she has all the rights of a wife. Now the next verse is what gets really troubling. Notice what it says. It says, If you are not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. You must not sell her or treat her as a slave since you have dishonored her. I say, Lord, what about Genesis chapter 1 and 2? If I was giving this instruction, I would say, that's it. God said one man and one woman for life. That's the way it is. And that is the way it is. That's the heart of God. That's the way God wants it to be. That's God's ideal standard. It's his heart. Whenever there's a breaking of that, it's wrong. But you know what? The children of Israel were letting girls go. In fact, the children of Israel were letting girls go where they would go into abject poverty or they would be made a slave or they would be sold. She didn't please him anymore. He wants to change. They would just sell her into slavery. Now, what does God do about that? And the perfectionists among us, you're going to hate me for this. I know you will. In fact, I almost cringe a little bit trying to teach you like this. Because a lot of you have been raised in backgrounds where it's this or else. And God only deals with absolute perfection. You've got to have everything lined up. I've had some friends that trained me early in my career. They had everything lined up in their whole theology. Every single detail was exactly right. Especially in this area. There is absolutely, certainly, absolutely no divorce at all. Which is, I believe that. I believe that's the heart of God. I think that if everyone followed the perfect heart in pleasing God and did what God really wanted them to do, there would be no divorce at all. But there is divorce. And there is sending away. And what I want you to see is that God is a gracious God that recognizes that hardness of heart. And what he does here is give legislation... He gives legislation that ameliorates or calms or makes a festering wound be able to begin to heal. And he doesn't let it get worse. Notice what God says. 
If you send her away, it says in verse 14, if you are not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. In other words, the girl is allowed. She can't be controlled. She can't be manipulated. She can go wherever she wishes. And you must not sell her or treat her as a slave. Why? Since you have dishonored her. You see, God said you did wrong. You have dishonored her. It's wrong for you to send her away. But you can't sell her as a slave. She must go forth. And I want you to see, this would be a prisoner of war that's made a wife and now is allowed to go out and she goes out as a free person. Now, is that God's heart? Does God really want that to take place? No. God's heart would be for this man. He made the commitment to the woman. He should keep it. But I want you to see that God enters into that messiness and doesn't let her treat her like a slave. Now, we're going to deal more when we get to Deuteronomy 24. I'm going to deal more with a question of divorce. I'm going to throw it into a New Testament context. But what I want to work with you now a little bit on is if you are rigid, if you are perfectionistic, it's going to be very hard for you to live in the world the way it is right now. I've had friends that don't have any of that bend They don't have any of that ability to see life the way it really is. And when life really is the way it is, their life almost comes to an end. And Mary and I have dealt with people, for example, in their laws, in their way of looking upon life, there is absolutely no divorce. There is no ending of a marriage. And then it happens. Well, when your whole viewpoint is, that's the end. There's no divorce that's absolutely, totally never should happen, which I would agree that it shouldn't happen. But what about when it does happen? What do you do then? And what I want you to see is that the God of Deuteronomy enters in when things do happen. And one of the things that wise people that follow the wisdom of God learn to do is never to lower God's standards. In fact, they recognize God's holiness more than than anyone would. But they realize that a holy God has incarnated himself among human beings that are a big mess. And they enter in and they, they exercise wise judgment to know how to make a bad situation begin to heal. And that takes a lot of skill and a lot of patience. It's much easier just to be rigid and just hold the standard and not be willing to deal with the messiness. But I want you to see this idea in Deuteronomy that what I just read to you, this whole paragraph, is not really God's ideal. It's not God's heart for this man to send this woman away. It's totally contrary to God's ideal in Genesis 2. But it happens. And God says if it does happen, then this can't happen. You cannot Treat her like a slave. You must treat her with respect. Let's go on to another messy situation. This even gets worse. Polygamy. Look at this. If a man has two wives, now this is the way I would do the verse. If I were God, I shouldn't play God, but if I were God, this is where the rest of the verse would go. If a man has two wives, he's sinning. He should get rid of one of them. And then there wouldn't be any problem. Amen? I mean, the Bible doesn't teach polygamy. Every time the Bible, every time the Bible talks about polygamy, there's problems. I mean, every single time. Remember Jacob and Esau, the problem in that household? You know, they just about killed each other. 
And the wives were just about killing it. The sisters were killing each other. And I throw my hands up. You see, from, from the vantage point of the total perfectionist, I say, God, just tell them. One man, one woman for life. That's it. But back in this culture, polygamy was a pretty normal thing. It wasn't right. God isn't saying that it was right. It wasn't right. It wasn't God's heart. It wasn't the way things ought to be. Christian marriages is one man and one woman for life. The Lord's not teaching. Don't go out of here saying, man, Midlothian Bible Church teaches polygamy. Please don't do that. But you've got to stay with me. This was a culture, like an African culture, for example, where polygamy had been part of the situation for many years. Does God go, I'm not going to deal with you anymore. What a mess you make of everything. You've just ruined my total ideal. I told you in the very beginning of this story, one man and one woman for life. Lamech had two wives. He blew it right away, and, he, and you guys have been blown it ever since. I'm just going to get rid of you. I'm leaving. See, that's the way a lot of you relate to God. That's the way, that's the way you relate. Man, a lot of your kid does something wrong. I've had it. Man, get out of my family. You missed a basket. You can laugh about this, but this tears people to smithereens. It really does. This rigidity, this perfectionism. I want you to see that Almighty God, notice what He says. He says, if a man has two wives, and he loves one but not the other, which is always what's going to happen, because you don't love, polygamy is coming back in. Only we just don't marry all of them. So girls, please, from the young girls, all those girls, don't believe when the guy says, I love both of you, but I love you in a different way. That, that's, that is a diabolical lie. You'll always love one and hate the other. It's the way life is. That's why polygamy is a bad thing. It always leads to favoritism. And he loved one, but not the other, and both bear him son, but the firstborn is the son of the wife he does not love, when he wills his property to his sons, he must not give the rights of the firstborn to the son of the wife he loves in preference to the actual firstborn, the son of the wife he does not love. Sounds like double talk, doesn't I'll straighten that in a minute. He must not acknowledge the son of his unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double share of all he has. The son is the first son of his father's strength. The right of the firstborn belongs to him. What's it saying here? So if you've got a polygamous situation, one wife is loved, one wife isn't loved. The wife that is loved has a son, but he's a younger son because the wife that was unloved had the firstborn son. What's the father going to want to do when it comes to giving out the inheritance? In old Israel, the firstborn son was supposed to get a double portion. That was the firstborn's right. He would get twice the land. He would get two fields instead of one. It's just the way that they, God chose in ancient Israel. Does this story remind you of anybody specifically? Remember the story of Jacob and Esau and, the, and all the conflict over the firstborn? And remember Jacob loved Rachel. He didn't love Leah and all the mess they had over that. That's where this law came from. You see, God is entering in this situation is messy. It's a polygamous situation. There's jealousy, there's rivalry, there's competition. And the tendency is to make a situation even more unfair because the firstborn son 
has his rights taken away? And God says on their Deuteronomic law, no. Even if you don't love that wife, you need to be sure that he gets what he's due. And so God enters into the messiness and gives a principle that produces fairness. You see, once again, that idea? A bad situation that God keeps from getting worse by giving some wise counsel, wise principles about life. A rebellious son. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son, now you can get the picture here, this is like trying to get a mule to do what you want the mule to do when the mule does not want to do it. And it has not been trained well. That's the picture that's here. This is a rebellious, hard-necked... You know what a hard-necked animal is? The animals that Pat Riggin trains, you can just talk to them in their ear and they turn. In fact, you can just nudge them. In fact, you just nudge them a little bit. In fact, they know what's going on in your mind and they turn. But the horse that I train, you've got to take a sledgehammer and hit them on the side you want them to go. That's the idea of stubborn and rebellious. Someone, a son or a daughter, that you just hit them over the head and they will not listen to you. This is an older son, not a little son. I know it's an older son because he's, he's going out and partying and getting drunk as a skunk all the time and just spending money like crazy. So it's that kind of a son. It says, if a man had a stubborn rebellious son who does not obey his father and his mother... And this is the way the modern society would read the next part. And will not listen to them. That is a good thing. Because he is exercising his own self-development. And he is growing into the individual deep within that he needs to be. And everyone needs to get out of his way and let him express his creativity. And the society will develop a bunch of creative, exciting, very successful people. Right? You hear that a lot. And you moms and dads, especially you dads, are made to be like you're the biggest idiot that ever imagined. And a big son, 17, 18-year-olds, look at you and says, Dad, I'm not going to do what you tell me to do. Our society says, well, you know, well, that's fine. I'll be glad to pay the bills. I'll be glad to feed you. I'll be glad to have your mother make your bed and it'll be just like living in the Holiday Inn. And you have no responsibility. You go out and do your thing and express yourself. And it'll be great when you come in at 3 o'clock in the morning after getting totally plastered with alcohol and shooting yourself up with heroin and everything. We'll just clean up the vomit and we'll all enjoy it together. <laughs> it's crazy. Absolutely crazy. That's where our society is. No one's responsible. You know what? You know, I'm going to tell you something else our society does. The parents sit at home. What have we done? Oh no, he did something horrible to our kid. Man, I, I know when I dropped him in the bathtub and I, he went underneath the water when he was a year and a half and he almost drowned and he came up blowing bubbles all over the place. That was the moment right then. No wonder the kid's going out and sleeping with every person he can find. No wonder he's a profligate. He slipped in the bathtub. I remember one time, boy, I lost my temper one time when he was three years old. I yelled at him and my face got red. Man, he's forever paralyzed. It's really time that we get real. Evil is a real thing. Stubbornness. 
the refusal to do what's right, the refusal to listen to authority, headstrong. And a horse, it'll kill you. When I was working Word of Light, we had a horse that had a neck like this person here. And he had a mouth that was like steel. And he had a body that was strong. It was one of the strongest horses I've ever been on. He could run like the wind. But he was headstrong and rebellious. When you got on his back, he'd put his head straight up, all the way back on you. And you could yank for everything you had. And he'd run like a wild terror. Run like the wind. And as a kid, we thought it was really great fun. And we just hug his neck, and it's amazing that I am still here. Because this is serious stuff. He wasn't trained. And one of my friends rode a horse like that. And when the horse smashed him into a tree, he chose the wrong side to lift his leg up and went headstrong into a tree. And because of an untrained horse, I held an 18-year-old kid in my lap with his head bleeding and with a doctor with tubes down his throat praying that we could keep him alive. We waited two months for him to come to. And only by the grace of God is he fine today. But stubbornness and rebelliousness in an animal can kill you. Stubbornness and rebelliousness in a son can kill you as well. And that's what this text is saying. It's saying that the father and mother shall take hold of him. They will bring him to the elders of the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and he's rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a profligate and a drunkard. He's a playboy. He was a partier and he's, a, he's an alcoholic. He just drinks like crazy. Then all the men of his town shall stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear it and they will be afraid. Boy, that's a rough one, isn't it? Kids, God takes obedience to parents pretty seriously. I want to tell you something. This was a culture, in fact, I'll use the Roman culture again. You know what a daddy would have done in the Roman culture in this text? A daddy in the Roman culture would have just taken his son and killed him. Because in Roman culture, the daddy had the right of life and death over his boy and over his daughter. He did whatever he wanted with them. Not in old Israel. I want you to see this balance. Because in problems with children, there are two parties. It's very important for me to balance what I said. There is respect for parents, but there can also be a daddy who's the drunkard himself. There can be the daddy that's a profligate himself who's making abusive charges. You see, it can work both ways. In old Israel, in old Israel, there was a court of appeal. In old Israel, a dad could not wipe out his son. He could not brutally beat his son. He could not hurt his son. He could not stone his son. And you can imagine this situation. You can imagine the agony of a family that had to come and bring their son to the elders. Once again, you notice the sense of community, that the community is in this together, that there is a group of older men there's a group of older people that are wise and mature in life that a parent that's having trouble with a son can bring that son to, and they have authority over them. But the father couldn't do it himself. 
It had to be an impartial thing. And the judge of the city, the judges, a plurality of judges, had to decide what was done. And there's an idea. It was carefully looked into. It was carefully exposed. And every side of the situation was dealt with. And only then would his stoning take place. And I want to tell you something. I know of no instance in the Old Testament where a son was stoned. In fact, I want to tell you something else. I also know of a story where a father let his drunkard, profligate son leave. And he didn't bring him to the elder of the city, he just let him go. And he prayed and he waited. Now those of you that are perfectionists will never understand all the factors that are involved in this. You see, in Deuteronomy, God is saying, kids, I take obedience and respect for dad and for mom really seriously. So seriously that among my old covenant people, the penalty for rebellious, hardened attitude, an attitude of hardened, continual rejection of authority, I would give the death penalty for that. But remember, God is also gracious. And so we don't have instances where Israelite sons were taken out in stone. But we have a culture that realized how important that respect for mom and dad was. But we also have the balance that mom and dad didn't have ultimate authority over that child. The community, a group of elders that had wisdom in life, had to get involved as well. But we also have a story where God himself is willing to let his son go out and learn in the school of experience. You see how God enters into the messiness? And the great story becomes when the profligate finally comes home and learns. But God didn't go out and rescue him in the cattle trough. He let him learn in the school of experience. One final thing, and we're done. The executed criminal, verse 22. It says, if a man guilty of a capital offense is put to a death, and his body is hung on a tree, you must not leave his body on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury him that same day. Because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. What the Lord is saying here in the ancient Near East, one of the things they would do when a person did a capital offense, in fact, we've really come full circle. I could almost make it like this. After they did the heifer ritual, now they found the man that killed the nameless victim that we started out with in our talk today. Now they found him. They have eyewitnesses that know that this man committed this crime. So the man is executed because a life for a life is what the Deuteronomic law prescribed. What they would do in old Israel is after the stoning, they would hang the body of the man publicly exposed up on a tree. It's gruesome. But what the Israelite people would do is they would say, thus be to the man who violently and maliciously and cruelly takes the life of another individual. We don't take it lightly. We take it very seriously. And that is a deterrent according to the Deuteronomic law. There was a swift and there was a fear. And we need to be very careful about jumping into our own culture because many times we have just circumstantial evidence 
We don't have eyewitnesses. Many times there's lots of racial questions that are, that are involved. Lots of times there's not real fairness. There's no sense of real justice. But I want you to feel this principle. This culture had a principle when violent, malicious acts are done, there needs to be a public shame and a public exposure. And so they hung the criminal. And it was, a, it was a, just a startling object lesson of thus shall be done to a man that violently takes a life. You think it was walk, safe to walk in the streets of Israel? I think it was. In old Israel, when they followed this law, it was. When they turned away from it, it wasn't. But you know what? The incredible thing about this verse, you know the way this verse is used in the New Testament? It's used in Galatians chapter 3. You know who becomes the cursed criminal? I want you to think about this man that's shamed on the tree. He's the guy that brutally took another life. He's a man who's publicly exposed to all of his peers, all of his city rejects him in shame. In the book of Galatians chapter 3, Jesus Christ became that curse. Jesus Christ became the one that was publicly hung on a tree. Jesus Christ became the one that was taken down before nightfall and buried in a tomb. Why? Because if some of you are sitting here today, you say, Dave, how in the world can you ever talk about God entering into the messiness of human existence? God is holy, he is transcendent, he is sovereign, he is totally perfect, totally clean, and you're exactly right. You're exactly right. He dwells in unapproachable light. But amazing grace says that God sent his son to take the curse that all of our messes deserve. It's not an easy forgiveness. It's not a lowering of the penalty that we deserve. Jesus fully paid it all. Calvary became the curse, the place where the justice and wrath of God was poured out so that we messed up people could become the children of God.